Well, it's great to be together. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here, and glad to greet you again. Glad you're here. Well, uh, I think it was four weeks ago, four weeks ago on Sunday, there was a young lady who came to church, and I just introduced myself, and uh, she said, yeah, this is actually my first time ever in a church. And I was like, ever in a church? You're 20 years old, ever in a church? She said, yeah, first time ever in a church. And then she came to my class that next week uh, from the, uh, one of our institute classes and came and was a part of that. And so I've gotten to know her a little bit. And I said, hey, Yana, why don't you get together with Daisy and just get to know her? This was last Monday, six days ago. And so they got coffee, and Yana was like, hey, I'm going to a worship night thing tonight if you want to come. And so Daisy went to the worship night thing. This was in uh, West Salem at a church in West Salem. And at some point during the worship night, they said, hey, we're just going to open up our baptismal, and if anybody would like to come forward to be baptized, you know, come on up. And Daisy came up, and Daisy got baptized. So four weeks ago, four weeks ago was Daisy's first time ever in a church, and now four weeks later, baptized and a part of our, our church body. And I thought, you know what? We didn't get to be a part of the baptism, but we can be a part of her story and hear some of her life. And I've gotten to know her a little bit, and I just think this is very powerful. A reminder that the Lord is still redeeming broken people and broken lives and bringing people to himself. And so I want to invite Daisy to come up, and she's going to share. Would you welcome her? Good morning, everybody. I just wanted to say that I'm super honored to be able to share this moment with you guys and share my testimony in front, in front of so many of God's beautiful children. So I want to start with John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I was born into a family where my father and my mother are same-sex attracted, living in separate households with their own partners. This sounds confusing, because it is. <laughs> but this was the start of my rough beginning, a broken and unbalanced one. At eight years old, the purest part of me was taken, my innocence ripped away thrusting me into a life that I couldn't even find family support from. And I coped by any means of an immediate fix. I couldn't stand to even be aware of my body touching my clothes or even look at myself in the mirror. I wasn't me. I was that shame and that sin. I tried following what the crowd was doing. They looked happy, they were doing drugs, they were drinking, they were letting their body be used, they had friends, they didn't care, they were free, so couldn't I? Over time, these things made me feel more shameful and further from redemption. I didn't feel deserving of anything. But at 18, out of the blue, I emerged into a relationship. This is what I had longed for. This is all that I wanted. This was going to complete me, right? When it was good, it was so good. But when it was bad, it was bad. 
I had not forgiven myself from the day I was eight to all my actions in between. I let the trail of trauma get longer. I felt like I deserved it. I was a bad person. I made bad decisions. So the treatment was the least I could endure to make up for what I felt I owed. But who do I owe? And why was that written on my heart? I didn't know. I just wanted to be forgiven. I couldn't handle everything I had done and what had happened to me from my past. And while in the relationship, having to constantly live through that shame every day, I couldn't handle the mental pain everything was causing. I used physical self-harm to try and combat the internal struggle. But I felt so guilty for marking my body and now having a few permanent scars that will always be a reminder of how far I let the darkness grasp me. I've struggled with suicidal thoughts, depression, anxiety, and panic attacks. I couldn't find any coping mechanism to help me. This was never what I wanted for myself. Those two years, I had no contact with my family. I had no friends. And I was so confused. How did I get here? Why is this happening to me? And who have I become? This shame drilled into my core, and I didn't even want to look in the mirror. January 18th, I was pushed to my limits mentally and physically. I ended that night with bruises all over my body, and I stepped back into my eight-year-old self again. I felt disgusting. The guilt, the shame, the anger flooded back into me so intensely. I was a stranger to my own soul. They say time heals, but one second felt like an eternity, and I didn't think I had the strength to keep going. A week later, he came back, and I knew I couldn't do it alone. I needed someone to give me the strength. So I stood forehead to the door while he's begging for me on the other side, and I prayed, God, give me the strength to stay away and give him the strength to walk. And he did. But I was still drowning in the guilt of my past actions and for leaving someone I loved, still dumping myself into sinful habits. Not many days after January 25th, a day the weeping wouldn't seem to stop, I fully opened my heart and I said, God, what am I supposed to do? And you know what I heard? Jesus forgives you. Forgiveness was all I had been searching for, but I couldn't give it to myself, and neither could the people I wanted it from. Only God has the mercy of giving true forgiveness, and he did once I sought him. So I ask again, who do I owe? I owe it to him to repent. Within a span of a few days, I changed my internal, my external expressions, my temptations vanished, my worries washed away, and my worldview shifted. He wrote that guilt in my heart to show what I needed to change, something I do now with joy. After 20 years of living a life of sin and unbelief, I'm here speaking to you his story on how he how he guided me to be saved. 
So I'll finish with Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Thank you. Wow. Let's pray and close. <laughs> that was really great. Thank you, Daisy. What, what a movement of God on your soul. What a, a sweet expression of faith and deliverance. The marvel of forgiveness. Well, I wasn't really expecting that. I heard a little bit about Daisy's story here and there, but just the power of that intervention and that connection with our God through Jesus. So great. Ecclesiastes. We're in a study in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's been really so much better than I thought it would be. When Tyler told me he was doing Ecclesiastes, I said, oh, <laughs> it's, it's so much there to really ponder and contemplate I'm really, I'm really blessed, really. And I haven't really done Ecclesiastes ever. I've been a pastor a long time, and I've uh, hunted at a few things in Ecclesiastes, but not the whole book. <laughs> you know, I, didn't, I, I really didn't want to pretend I knew what I was talking about in Ecclesiastes. So, and so today, now I'm going to pretend that I know what I'm talking about. But anyway, <laughs> just kidding. I, um, I'm glad to kind of... Uh, partner with Tyler today on this book, and I am really impressed with something that rings out in Ecclesiastes time and again. It's the word Havel, H-E-B-E-L in the Hebrew, and you can't miss it. I mean, you don't have to read very far because it's mentioned 37 times, so that's pretty significant, and we have talked about Havel a number of times about the fact that it's a vapor, I mean, kind of connected to the idea of a vapor, like smoke uh, dissipating. The NIV translates it meaningless, and then the uh, New American Standard, for example, uses the word vanity. And to me, Havel, which is really uh, something that I've been thinking about, it's, uh, it makes so much sense. It's uh, something I've done. I've tried to grab at what life has to offer, and it just slips through your fingers. And there's very little left, like very little that truly has lasting satisf satisfaction. And so Havel can mean like fleeting or um, fragile or fluctuating, to mention a few of those kind of words. But the idea of uncertain, um, disappointing, confusing. Those are definitions of Havel, and that's really the backdrop of Ecclesiastes, and so to today. And, and so this is Solomon's strongest point, really, along with his connection to under the sun, under the sun, life on earth, under the sun, 27 times. He says, under the sun. And you put those two together, and, and, it, and it's really it, it's, uh, helpful to think of it that way. That's his conclusion. And he is suggesting that we're trying to get too much out of life. 
You think that's ever true? Trying to get too much out of this life. Really sink our teeth into this life. And he's saying, I did all of that, and it was Havel. So that's been such a good lesson for me to contemplate and think about, and I've appreciated the chance to be in this um, series with Tyler. And I get to share a little bit today, too. And um, the, th- the thing that makes the connection from last Sunday to this Sunday is really this continuation of wisdom. And I've been thinking about wisdom since I went to a spiritual gifts workshop a couple of weeks ago when the women put on a, a, a second uh, instructional seminar and, and there was a spiritual gifts inventory as a part of it. And I was really surprised about one aspect of it for me personally. It was that this idea of the gift of wisdom kind of was high on the charts of spiritual gifts that were a part of my life and what God had given me. And I'm telling you, I've taken a number of these spiritual gift inventories over the years, and I never saw wisdom anywhere on the charts. (laughs) It was somewhere down in the middle, lost in the shuffle. But this time it rose pretty high. And I was kind of thinking, what about that? And I've kind of contemplated, connected to the thoughts today on something about wisdom. And I I thought about how for such a long time, I blamed my dad about certain things, like that he'd kind of let me down, and and that maybe I would suggest he wasn't there in the way that I wanted to. And I tried to prove myself in life uh, in, in part because I was trying to prove myself to my dad. And... And yet wisdom tells me, I maybe have learned this, that my dad, he's a good guy. And you know what he did? He did the best he could with what he had. And so I love my dad for who he is. Why? Wisdom. I remember getting married and thinking, this is what marriage is going to be. It was pretty high, and the expectations on my wife were pretty high in my mind and everything, and yet the expectations were like in the ozone. (laughs) You know, they they weren't fair. They were unreachable. And again, wisdom tells me, to concentrate on what is. What is is much more significant than what isn't. So I love my wife for who she is, plain and simple. And why? Wisdom. I recall a time talking with some other staff at a church I was serving, and I was talking about Uh, my boss, (laughs) and I wasn't saying very many positive things about my boss, who happened to be the pastor of the church, and I was suggesting something like, well, the church would be doing a lot better if it wasn't for my boss. And I think back at how shallow that was, just so shallow. And wisdom tells me that God had placed him in that place 
in that position for a purpose. And that the best thing that I could do would be to build him up, not tear him down. And I was thinking about these things, these kind of connections, such important connections. And I was realizing that God has been helping me with wisdom. And that, that slowly but surely, mostly slowly, <laughs> I have learned. I've gained some wisdom. And it sort of matches something that I've kind of not, I've overlooked in God's word from time to time. And it's the definition of wisdom in James. James 3.17. And this definition of wisdom is so interesting to me. It says, but wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And I don't know, that's been in the Bible since <laughs> the first century, but I just, I, I've missed it. It's so intriguing to me to read that about wisdom because I would think about wisdom being, wisdom is being smart. Wisdom is having the right answers. Wisdom is winning the debate. Wisdom elevates my status. Is that right? No, it's not right. That's a skewed view. That's, that's a, a, a wrong definition, according to the Bible, about wisdom. And so right from the beginning, in this chapter that we're in in Ecclesiastes, we hear something about wisdom that's surprising, I think. And then it goes on to, um, you know, say more about it. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 8. Ecclesiastes 8 is where we are. Uh, we've piggybacked to such insightful and practical things that Tyler had last week on wisdom. And it sort of is a summary and a connection to ideas that are going to be shared in the rest of the chapter. And it goes like this in verse 1. Who is the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. That's such an interesting statement to me. And wisdom says, verse 2, Obey the king's commands, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his commands, his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. The wise heart will know the what and when, and they'll know the time to do the next right thing. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter. Though a person may be weighed down by misery, though life might be difficult, still wisdom will lead us in the right direction. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? As no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. As no one is discharged in times of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. Verse 9, 
all this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There's a time when a man lords it over others to his own harm. Then too I saw the wicked bury those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will be, go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous will get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who, uh, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is Havel, meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that's done on, the, on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done comma, I think, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning, even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. This is the word of the Lord for us today. And I know there's a lot there, but I think there's kind of a theme that is woven through it, and I believe it's tied to this idea in verse 1 of wisdom because chapter 7 was so connected to wisdom. Now let's see it kind of played out. Now I didn't, I I forgot to give um, the projectionist a a cue. Each point here to me teaches me that wisdom brings contentment. When I read read, um, James 3, 17, I read that idea, humility, contentment, uh, it's softer, things like that. I mentioned that. But now when I read verse 1 and a person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance, I think about that connection to pure and peace-loving and considerate and submissive and sincere from James 3.17. I see a connection there. And then I see maybe something that will kind of unravel. Like, look what the message paraphrase says about verse 1. This is really something from Eugene Peterson. There's nothing better than being wise, knowing how to interpret the meaning of life. Wisdom puts light in the eyes and gives gentleness to words and manners. That's his definition of verse 1, and I think it really fits. The idea of contentment. So let's see how this passage might draw us into this life living with contentment. It begins this way. Wisdom believes that earthly authority is good. Earthly authority is good. That's how it starts. 
the first paragraph or so is about this fact that the king is in charge. And as he's in charge, we are to obey him. And the governing authorities are put in place for what? For our good. That's the idea. That's how I see it. And the New Testament affirms this also. When Paul said to, in the writings in Romans, Romans 13.1, simply put, let everyone be subject. The word could be submissive. Wisdom is submissive. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. And then match that verse with what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.2. Maybe you remember this because we studied Timothy. Pray for kings and all those in authority. Why? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Peaceful and quiet lives, for me, can easily connect to the idea of contentment. That's what I think. I think the idea of obeying and following the direction of the governing authorities is to live a life that has the potential of contentment. As it says in verse 4 in the message translation, the king has the last word, okay? Who dares to say to him, what are you doing? Earthly authority. It begins in this passage with the idea of earthly authority. So what do you think about earthly authority? That's like, like you know, like parents or um, police officers or teachers or coaches or, or the government. What do you think about earthly authority? How do you think we're doing as a society with earthly authority? I wouldn't say we're really on the top of our game when it comes to earthly authority. It's, it's, it's a question. The sense of honor and respect are, are weaker, right? And that would suggest, at least by Solomon, that we're not being especially wise. So wisdom for Solomon uh, is submissive to authority. And I think we would all agree that that is a good way to go. That's, that's good to follow those in, in, who are in charge. Simply put, I... I have this in my notes. Solomon is saying life under the sun can be good, even lead to contentment as we're submissive to those in charge. But I, I know you're ready for the but. But what about, what about when they don't? And uh, I know. It says in verse 7, uh, you know what? The, the, the king doesn't know the future. And um, he, he can't control the wind. And he's not sure when people die. I mean, the king is what? He's human. He's only human. And the governing authorities are only human. Earthly authority is limited. It's limited. And our lack of wisdom has us focusing on how government is limited and how leaders are limited and how parents are limited. Instead of our first response in wisdom is to honor and respect. That's what I think is going on, at least in part. And really, um, the idea that earthly authority is limited comes out very strongly 
in the words that people can do, uh, they can commit a crime, verse 11, and if they're not uh, accountable for the crime, then they'll be filled with schemes to do more wrong. Um, how did I put that? People get away with a crime and they think they can get away with anything, right? Or the next one, a hundred crimes. There's a hundred uh, things that, hundred sins, hundred ways of breaking the law. And if there's no consequences and they go on living like nothing is wrong at all. We can focus on that and he says that. But he makes this very um, strong turn. Very strong turn, right in the middle of the paragraph. He says, he says, you know, this could be good. Earthly authority can be good to a degree, but to something better. And the better is in verse 12. And it says, essentially, divine authority is better, right? Divine authority. And the idea here is that submission to God. And, and putting God in the place of authority and the one that's in charge. And so you have the statement in verse 12 right here. I know that it will go better for those who fear God, who are reverent before him. And the word reverent really has this idea of submission, uh, uh, to honor, to obey. Yeah, it's, it, it's right there accountable to God. So that's Solomon's message right in the middle. It kind of surprises us, but it's so significant. And it really is what works. Uh, Godly authority is better. And then the contrast is that some people say, no, that's, that's, they don't, they don't buy into that. In verse 13, the wicked don't fear God, and if they don't fear God, it does. It, it, the the message here is it's not going to go well for them. It's not going to go well for them, and so there's there's people that don't fear God, acknowledge God, put their um, allegiance to God at all, and and they do a hundred crimes, and it seems like it's no big deal, but guess what? Someone knows. God knows. They think it seems like people get away with stuff, doesn't it? People get away with stuff in our world. No, no, they don't, they don't get away with stuff because God knows everything. Because God knows. In fact, Solomon is going to come back to this, this, this significant statement about God's justice overall when in Ecclesiastes chapter 11... Verse 9, he's going to say something more succinct about this. He's going to say it like this. Follow the ways, and a way to understand that is the impulses, the kind of like the spontaneity of your own heart, and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all things, the selfish motivation of your heart, God will bring you into judgment. Solomon knew that. He said that. You think that you're getting away with stuff, but people are accountable to God. And the thing is that we don't see sometimes the consequences. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't see the consequences 
in people's lives, but there are consequences coming down the road. Maybe not in this life, but for sure in the next. And Solomon is focusing on that, uh, that idea. Now, getting back to kind of how to, how to understand, you know, God's authority and what really could be a perspective that would lead to contentment, look what it says in verse 15. Verse 15, it, uh, I'm not quite ready to read that. I just want you to think about verse 15 and leading up to this idea that I think it points to contentment again. Let's see if you agree. Listen. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then gladness or joy, same word, will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. Now, some people read this and kind of go, oh, yeah, go out and party and, you know, sin's no big deal. Just have at it. It's not saying that. It's not like going, okay, uh, freedom leads to license, leads to sin, and live selfishly, and it's going to all work out good. No, it's not saying that. It's talking about in the moment, in, in this moment, gladness and joy are possible in any moment. Gladness and joy can propel us this moment to the next day. The certainty of, of God's presence in our lives, the idea of him and the gifts of life, in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the confusion, in spite of disappointments, he can, we can experience the, the gift of joy that leads us or accompanies us through the toil of life, through the challenge of life. You know, I, I can guarantee you one thing in the next few days, you're going to have some challenges. And they're either going to be a, a bummer or they could possibly be energized by God's presence and his joy that you're experiencing in any given moment. To live in the moment. It's the present time because it's a gift. I think that's what he's talking about here. And I, I, I was uh, drawn to this commentary by uh, John Woolward. He is uh, a writer with the Old Testament Bible knowledge commentary. And his words are these. Man cannot control or predict adversity or prosperity. However, each day's joys can be received as gifts from God's hand and be savored as God's pathway to contentment. I think verse 15 is, is pointing to the thing that the Apostle Paul told the Philippians, I have learned the secret of being content. I can have a bunch of stuff or nothing at all, and I've learned to be content either way. And I think that's what he's pointing to, the secret of contentment. Well, uh, the message, uh, no, verse 14, verse 14, <laughs> the 
is going to get us this good popper bubble, I'm telling you. Verse 14 uh, says something about Havel, and it says this. I've seen something that occurs on earth. The righteous will get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. Okay? And he says that right out. He's seen it. It, it happens. The message, put it this way, here's something that happens and makes no sense at all. <laughs> here's something that happens in life and it makes no sense at all. When stuff like this takes place, we're prone to what? We're prone to say, why? Why does this happen? This person was so good and they got that and they it ended this way and like the 28-year-old missionary named Jim Elliott who goes to share the gospel with the Aka Indians in Ecuador and his life is ended. Why? Like the 37-year-old pastor to women at the church I served, a godly woman, so cool and everything, uh, died of lung cancer, never smoked a cigarette in her life. And then the countless children that never see... The, their first year of life, like Peter Jolly, of our own church, they're gone. We see why. And then at the same time, we see person after person who accumulates so much and so many, and they push and pull their way around, hurting people right and left, seemingly with no consequences to their sinful and selfish behavior. We say, God, foul. That's a foul. Does it make sense? I don't get it. And here's Solomon leading us with his own life experience and his insights and wisdom and his regrets. He's leading us all along. And he's telling us to submit to wisdom. I mean, wisdom says to submit to authority when everything goes the way you like it. He doesn't say that. I'm going to submit to authority when it makes sense to me, right? Wrong. That's what he's, I think he's been leading us to this point with this crescendo in verses 16 and 17 that for me just kind of jumps off the page when it says, when I apply my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that's done, to, done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God had done, common, no one can comprehend what goes under the sun in this life besides all their efforts to search it out. No one can discover its meaning. Even the wisest guy like Solomon claim they know they cannot really comprehend it. All that, all that like Ecclesiastes 3.11 with the beautiful statement that eternity is in their hearts and then what does it say? No one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. No one. These are the words of Solomon. No one. This directs us to a, a very, I think a very hard question. It's my last point. Ultimate authority is best. And when I say that, 
ultimate authority, I'm, I'm referring to God and the question, does God have ultimate authority in your life? And when we hear that question, our first kind of religious response is, oh, sure, yes. Well, how do I know if God has ultimate authority in my life? How do you know if God has ultimate authority in your life? Well, let's see. How about this? Number one, you trust him no matter what. Trust him no matter what. And you're standing before King Nebuchadnezzar. And you're not going to bow down to that golden Nile because God has ultimate authority in your life. And he says, you better bow down. I'm going to give you another chance to bow down to the golden image. But if you don't, I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, your majesty, we will never, bow down to your golden image. And, and God will deliver us. Verse 18. And even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your image. That's trusting God no matter what. Number two, hold on loosely. Hold on loosely to this life. Hold on loosely. And I'm reminded of Hebrews 11 and the, the, the chapter on faith and how God um, recognized faith in Abraham and recognized faith in Moses and recognized faith in so many and just one after another until we get to verse 35 and it said, women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refused to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received in this life what had been promised. Wisdom tells us that we have, we want too much from this life. And we got a tight grip on it. Number three, worship God as your ultimate authority, isn't it? Doesn't it make sense that this would, would move towards worship, glory of God, surrendering to him? Surely it does. And, and the, the way that Paul ends Romans 11 is just, it's just like, for me, such an inspiration. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. 
Who has known the mind of the Lord or, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The way that the message paraphrase put verse 16, it said, if you keep your eyes open day and night without blinking, you'll never, you'll still never figure out the meaning of what God is doing on earth. So you can trust him no matter what. So you can hold loosely to the things of this life and worship him as your ultimate authority because he is the one in charge. And you know what will happen? Contentment.